Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard podcast, episode 13. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And of course, we are getting further into the NFL season. We're already at week 14. Wow, this year has gone pretty fast. We're already into December. And, of course, getting closer to the playoffs with the NFL. But already talking about the playoffs is college football. So, Jose, we're going to be talking a lot about the NFL. And we're talking about college football for the first time on the podcast. So, an exciting show. Yeah, it's, it's, we're getting to that point of the year where it's very exciting. Because you got the college football playoffs. But then you got the regular football season teams fighting for the playoffs. You know, so many good teams this year in the NFL. Nothing's really set in stone. We have a couple of wild card spots still up for grabs, a couple of divisions to find out who's going to win the division, who's going to set up for the wild card. And then, of course, the college football, ever since they introduced these new, um, the new playoff format, there's always a debate on who's in, who's out, who got snubbed. So it's, it's a very exciting time of year where everything starts to come together all in dramatic fashion, too. Yeah, and I think one of the coolest parts about college football this season is normally it's been there were only two teams. Even though there was a four spots, there was only really two true teams that were either undefeated or that were the best by far and that were going to wind up in playing in the championship game. And this year, it was this weird moment where we could have easily made the case of eight or nine teams that could be one of these top four in the end in a very close race at the very end for the four and the five. But let's begin with who got in. So at number one is Clemson. They finished the season 12-1 and this year and only picking up one loss. And a lot of that had to do with getting injuries in that one game. Overall, though, Clemson coming off of the championships beforehand and finishing with the number one seed. And then second, the University of Oklahoma, 12-1 and as well. Georgia, we saw come almost out of nowhere at times, picking up some big wins. In the season, they finished 12-1, and but what stands out is the big one at number four being Alabama, while Ohio State finished at five. Alabama finished the season 11-1. They did not even have a game in their final week. They were just watching TV as Georgia was playing in that game versus Auburn, while Ohio State wound up winning the game against Wisconsin finishing their season 11-2, and two, one more loss than Alabama, and wind up as the fifth seed. So, Jose, let's start it off with the main part. 
did the committee get it right with Alabama over Ohio State? No, they didn't. Uh, I mean, and again, we were talking about a couple weeks ago how Alabama was on the outside looking in. Nick Saban was in a press conference basically crying and begging, saying, we should still be in this despite us losing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of sick and tired of it. I get it. Alabama has one of the best football programs out there. Um, They obviously have one of the best teams because they're able to bring in so many people with the history of Alabama. It's obviously an easy sell for high school kids that are looking to go to college. And when you're sitting across from their parents saying, hey, this is what Alabama's about. Look at all that we've done. Look at these star players in the NFL that have come from Alabama. We produce good players. We produce a good product. And obviously our results speak for itself. I get it. But honestly, I mean, it's cool that the committee does this whole who's in, who's out. We're going to choose the best four. But I still question what exactly is the criteria for choosing these teams. Are we basing it off record? Are we basing it off who they are? Are we basing it off who they beat? Are we be, Are we basing it off how they beat them? Because honestly, like we said, Alabama pretty much gets to choose their own schedule. And Alabama probably has one of the easiest schedules out of a lot of other teams because of the fact that Nick Saban gets to choose his schedule. So my question is, is Alabama getting in because of who they are? Or are they getting in because of how they played? Because they play great no matter what. Alabama is a good football team. But the question is, was Ohio State better than them? And I think Ohio State did play better than them, especially down the stretch. They played the extra game. They won that game against Wisconsin. So if you're if you're asking me who played better football down the stretch, it was Ohio State and not Alabama. However, I will say that obviously I saw this coming because there was no way, absolutely no way, they were going to have a college football playoffs without Alabama in it. I think they're scared that the ratings might take a dip because every year everybody tunes in to see if Alabama is going to lose or not. So to me, it's one of those things where it's saying, hey, you know, there are probably a couple of other teams that deserve it. And I hate to say this. I hate to, you know, you know, yell conspiracy. But I also think the network is saying we still want the ratings. We want people to tune in. We're putting Alabama in the playoffs. Yeah, it's it's a weird moment because University of Alabama, all right, they go 11-1. and one. Their one loss is against Auburn, who finishes as the sixth best team in the country. And they faced Auburn in a game where I expected Auburn to win. I it's Because they were the hotter team, they had been going crazy on a stretch, beating up on multiple teams, and they did outplay Alabama in that game. But you look at Alabama's season, and they're 11-1 and one record. They don't have many credible wins to them. All they have is just one loss compared to Ohio State's two losses. And when you look at the two losses for Ohio State, one of them, unfortunately, is really their black cloud. It's the loss to Iowa, 55-24 to on November 4th. And that might have been the reason why. Because now the committee's looking at it like, Maybe Alabama or Ohio State, it doesn't matter who's the better team or not, but are we allowing in the championship or in the playoffs a two-loss team that lost to an unranked team badly? Other than that, we're looking at this as like, it, it, it does feel that record matters more than resume. Because I, I look at the Ohio State, just their resume. They have a loss against Oklahoma in the second week of the season. Oklahoma finishes as the nation's second-best team record-wise. And when they played Oklahoma, they were ranked the fifth-best team. 
So that's already a tough matchup just to begin your season. Then they've also beat the Penn State when Penn State was a two-seed. They beat Michigan State. They beat Wisconsin as a four. They have constantly put up great wins. And they're going to be out because they have two losses in my mind. They're going to be out because we talked about it all throughout the year. Where, what's your resume look like? How well did you play against other opponents? How well did you play against nationally ranked teams? How many nationally ranked teams did you play? When it's not anywhere like that, in the end of the day, Nick Saban has the right plan. It's take advantage of the schedule. Don't play high-ranked teams. Don't play high-ranked teams on the road. Play them in a neutral field. He got caught in a rare moment with Auburn, where he played them on the road. But overall, Saban pits out the schedule. He pits out a very easy schedule for Alabama. Because Saban knows at the end of the day, like you said, he made his case to the committee. It's about not losing than it is about who you're playing. And I don't agree with that at all. But did, Jose, in your mind, did the committee make a statement by saying record is greater than resume? Or did they look at both at the end? I mean, I believe they looked at both because they got the first three right. I mean, I'm glad that they chose Clemson. I'm glad they chose Oklahoma. I'm glad that they chose Georgia, too. I mean, you could have argued Auburn could have easily gotten in as well, too, with how many big wins they had. I mean, this is a team that they beat Alabama. They beat Georgia. They were basically, you know, like a, a, a legend killer at the end of the day. Auburn beat a lot of good teams. Ohio State should have been in it. Um, so I think they did pay attention to resume. It's just for that last spot. I, I'm really convinced that they said there's no way we're having a playoffs without Alabama. We're choosing Alabama. Even if it's the fourth seed, we're choosing Alabama to get in this because why? It sets up an Alabama-Clemson rematch right from the get-go in the first round. So I think that appealed to them uh, likely. Again, I'm not so sure that you know they made a statement saying record matters more. Um, it kind of looks that way because everybody that they chose only has one loss or, or less than one loss in that r- regard. But I really think this just came down to, hey, let's throw Alabama in there because we need to have them in the playoffs when it's all said and done. Yeah, there, there definitely were some interesting choices on why choose Alabama over Ohio State. And again, just going over Alabama's record, they played Florida State. Mind you, they were a three seed week one when they played Florida State. But Florida State did not turn out to be a three seed. Florida State's not even nationally ranked. They had a terrible year. So we have to ignore that entirely in my mind. They're, they were not a three. You didn't play that team as it is. Their only other two wins against nationally ranked teams are a 19 LSU and a 16 Mississippi State in the early part of November. Uh, then they played one other team nationally ranked, Auburn. Nationally ranked number six at the time. And they lost by 12. There's... My mind, they got it wrong. And in my mind, if you said, if these two teams, Alabama and Ohio State, played on a neutral field, could Alabama beat Ohio State? High possibility of that. But did Ohio State have a better season than Alabama? In my mind, yes. Even with a second loss, and being 11-2 and compared to the 11-1 Alabama, Ohio State had the better season. 
they had better quality wins, they beat better teams, and they had one black cloud. And basically, and that black cloud isn't even losing badly to Iowa. Their black cloud is playing Oklahoma early in the year. Their black cloud is playing tough teams throughout the season. Because if you're not doing that, you have the same schedule as Alabama at that point. If you're not playing Oklahoma, and you're not losing Oklahoma all of a sudden, now you're just playing Michigan State, a 12, Penn State, who was a 2 at the time, Wisconsin, who was a 4 at the time. So you're looking at it and saying, okay, their fault is trying to play all these great teams, and it's going to result in a couple losses. So, again, I, I truly feel that this has shown that record is greater than resume, and certainly, again, uh, Ohio State is a top-notch university. It is one of the best professional, uh, one of the best college football programs. It is one of the top names, but so is Alabama. So is Nick Saban. And just like you said, this is Alabama who was in the college championship two straight years, and it seems like they're always in the championship game. Clemson's number one. Alabama's been playing Clemson for the last two years in the championship. Why not have a rematch with them at four for a third straight year and the winner gets to the championship? It's It definitely seems as a TV thing for the committee, but the committee did one thing this year and it was constantly make no sense throughout the entire year of how they nationally ranked teams. Because like we said, there were about eight or nine teams that were good enough to be one through four. Maybe Clemson is that one exception because they've been playing phenomenal and they're going to be that one. But two through nine could have easily been a different vice versa. And unfortunately, I don't believe Alabama should have been in at the four. And it should have been Ohio State considering on who they beat throughout the season and how they played and getting a win over Wisconsin Instead of playing a football game like Alabama, just watch TV, watching Ohio State, hoping Ohio State wins so that they can get in. It just, there's a strange sentence to that for me on that part. Yeah, and again, it, it begs the question you know, you saw the college football, they expanded to four teams, they expanded to this four, you know, this four team format in which we have a playoff ranking. Why not look even further? Maybe do we expand it to six teams in the upcoming years? That way teams like Ohio State don't get snubbed, where you have the number one and two seeds have a bye, kind of like the way we do it in the regular football playoffs. I mean, that way we're not having this discussion every year about who got snubbed and who didn't get in and who deserved it and who don't deserve it. I mean, I think that's a legit possibility and a legit argument that we should have that, hey, maybe we should expand this thing to six teams and just give the first two a bye. See, that's an interesting part because – it, it, well, I mean, every team's got a buy right now. They don't play till January anyway. Right. Um, but do you expand it to six? Do you expand it to eight? Because the thing about like college sports is, look how many teams make the playoffs. Take the NCAA for basketball. There, there's not sixty-four. There's now sixty-eight teams that make it because we have those other games for the first four to try and get those certain spots, that, that last spot to be in the round of 64. 
But originally, it's not 64, it's 68, and we do all that large bracket. The, the one problem with that, though, is I, last year, I think it was part of some of the players were not going to play their bowl games. Uh, nobody sat out for the college playoffs, but the bowl games, we saw some players sit out for. Because you are playing an extra football game, you are risking yourself before a draft, and you want to get into the NFL at the end of the day. So by asking teams to play, by asking a sits team or an eight or or a sits team, you are asking more of these football players to play more games throughout the season. And as a fan, that sounds great, but as a college football player. Your only goal is to get to the NFL, and that can get delayed or blocked because you played a couple extra games and it resulted in a possible injury at that point. So can it be a positive or a negative to go up to eight games? I'll just say eight because it will be a little bit easier than a bye week to say. I slightly disagree with that only because, like we said, Leonard Fournette set out his bowl game last year because he knew that even if LSU won, it doesn't really mean anything for him in the end. But if you attach the if you attach the stipulation that hey this is a playoff game to compete for the national football title on a national stage where everyone's going to know your name where everyone's going to know who won that team I think players would have a different take on it. So, so it's more like okay we give acceptance to the guys that sit out for their bowl games that aren't for the college football playoffs. Well, personally, I would like to see them play. I, it does kind of bother me when they don't play when they sit out. I understand it because, like you said, I don't want an injury to derail someone's NFL career. But if I'm a fan of the school and I'm a fan in general, I would like to see the star player play because all of a sudden that might affect the team that's actually playing in the bowl game. I'm just saying as a player, I might not care to play in the Sugar Bowl or whatever it's called or the Fiesta Bowl because it doesn't lead to a national title. But all of a sudden, if you say, hey, my team made it as a seventh seed to the national football playoffs, my attitude changes 100 percent definitely. I almost feel like the outside bowl games are like a Week 17 football game. If you're already in the playoffs, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't be playing. And if you're out of the playoffs, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't be playing. Uh, so it only should matter to the teams that are are playing for that extra playoff spot, uh, for playing for that sixth seed or playing for that fifth seed or playing for a division. Uh, that's That's the equivalent for me when it comes to these outside bowl games. It should be a select few actually considering playing for these games. And it is down to the college football playoffs on that part. When, As much as I'd love the idea of eight teams or six teams getting in, um, I, I think this year's an exception as well because th- there hasn't been that many years where we say, there are eight phenomenal football teams in college f- football. And I think that's one of the big challenges with going to eight. It, it is a rarity to say that sentence. It's a rarity to say there's four. This year we had a tremendous amount. But next year we may only have two. So I think that's a, a little bit of uncertainty there. I, I think eventually maybe they will consider going to eight or going to sits. Uh, but for right now, I don't think they're going to consider it because I think they're going to look at this and say, hey, there was just an odd year where there were so many good football teams compared to years past where 
you know, one team's already undefeated, another team's got one loss, and and these other teams just got by with like one uh one loss as well, but everybody else is so far behind. So I think this was a rare year to have where it comes out that way. Because again, you have in one division, Auburn, Georgia, and Alabama all playing each other, and there's still phenomenal records between them all. And they're still beating up on every other team they're playing. So it is a rare year, and we saw different times when it's like Notre Dame's the top seed. Nope, Notre Dame's out of the top four, the team that beat them. Miami's in the top four. Nope, Miami's gone now. Somebody else is taking them over. So I think this was just an an exception to the rule by saying that there was eight or nine great teams this season, and it's tough to go for a full load of eight or six teams for a playoff when health goes on the line, players have to play more football games, and there's no guarantee that there's going to be six to eight great college football teams at the end of the day. Well, one thing we're not going to do today, though, is we're not going to give our college football predictions yet. Uh, the games are getting, I think, January 1st, and we're only in December 7th. So we got a little while to go, and we'll certainly be talking about the college football playoffs closer to the day. Probably we'll do a podcast a little after Christmas, and that will cover our college football predictions for the playoffs. But I do want to talk about the Heisman, and let's give our predictions on the Heisman as well. So... Really, there are three main players to consider, one being Lamar Jackson of Louisville. On the year, he had a phenomenal year. He's coming off the Heisman last year. This season, he passed for nearly 3,500 yards, 25 touchdowns, only six interceptions, and you're talking about a player that also rushed for over 1,400 yards and 17 touchdowns as well, and he probably even had a better year than his Heisman year. The other player, Bryce Love from Stanford, the running back, rushed for nearly 2,000 yards, 1,973, with 17 touchdowns as well. He didn't really receive the ball much, but he picked up a couple of receiving yards, 33 on the year, which puts him, when you combine the two, over a 2,000 total yard season, and as well, 17 touchdowns is always a standout for that, and... The third real choice on the list is Baker Mayfield from Oklahoma. Baker Mayfield threw for over 4,300 yards, had 41 touchdowns to just nine interceptions, a QB rating of a 93.1. And he didn't rush as much as Lamar Jackson, 310 rushing yards for five touchdowns on the year, but talking about 46 total touchdowns by Baker Mayfield this season. Jose, who do you have? winning the Heisman well it's funny because originally and when we talked about it too I originally had Baker Mayfield winning it um but you know thinking about it and thinking it over I think I'm actually going to roll with Lamar Jackson I think he's actually going to win back-to-back Heisman awards here um you know obviously to me I think it's down to um down to Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield Bryce Love I mean he's on the list but I don't think he's like a legit contender for the Heisman I think he's just the third choice that they want to throw on the ballot it's really, in my opinion, between Jackson and Mayfield. And they both have done phenomenal things. I mean, Jackson's had a phenomenal year, like you said, but kind of gets hurt by playing on Louisville. Not really a top-ranked team. Not going to be in the college football scenario. So, I mean, that, that, that shouldn't hold him back, though, on what he's able to do. And he's still having a phenomenal year, 
even with a team that may not be as good as some of these other college football teams. Now you have Baker Mayfield, who again could be a reason why Oklahoma wins the whole thing this year in the college football playoffs. Baker Mayfield is an outstanding quarterback, in my opinion. I think he's going to do very well eventually when he gets into the NFL. I think a lot of teams already have him on his radar, on their radar, uh, to draft Baker Mayfield. But to me, the difference between Mayfield and Jackson is not really on the football field in terms of stats. And I don't know if the committee, whoever votes for the Heisman, is going to consider this. But the behavior problems, too. I mean, how many times have we seen Baker Mayfield going over the top, acting a little bit overzealous on the field, whether it was his grabbing his crotch on the sideline at the team? Now, I know that wasn't completely his fault. He felt disrespected by the other team, so he did it in retaliation. But there's a series of things that Baker Mayfield has done in terms of character that compared to Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson looks like a saint compared to Baker Mayfield. So I give it to Jackson. Again, the stats may not be similar because Jackson is a fan of rushing the ball as opposed to Mayfield, who has a cannon who can throw it anywhere on the field. But in terms of what the Heisman is supposed to represent, the best football player on the field in college football, and in terms of character, which I do take into effect too when I vote on things like this, if I were to vote on things like this, I think I'd give it to Lamar Jackson over Baker Mayfield. So I have the opposite pitch. I have Baker Mayfield. And you look at the two players, and when you combine their rushing and passing yards – Lamar Jackson has Baker Mayfield beat, even when Mayfield has thrown for nearly just under a thousand yards more passing than Lamar Jackson. But when you also combine the touchdowns, 46 to 42, Baker Mayfield has Lamar Jackson beat. And the bigger standpoint, I think that also counts at the end of the day, especially when it comes to quarterbacks. We do look at wins. And one of them, Baker Mayfield for Oklahoma, is the two seed in the college football playoffs. And his team has won throughout the entire season 12-1. and one. Lamar Jackson, I believe in Louisville, went 8-4 and four this year. They're not nationally ranked. They've struggled all year long. And, and now that, that is not on Lamar Jackson, especially when you're looking at the stats that Lamar Jackson has put up. And he's had possibly a more impressive year than his Heisman year last year. It's so tough to ignore a quarterback that has thrown for over 40 touchdowns and 4,300 yards and still has five rushing touchdowns to go on that, and his team is in the college football playoffs. Character aside, I think Baker Mayfield has had the better year, and his stats will show it as well. And You look at touchdowns at the end of the day. We've looked at mainly two things when it comes to quarterbacks. Touchdowns and passing yards. We also looked at interceptions and Mayfield has less interceptions than Lamar Jackson, five to six. But I think this is going to go to Baker Mayfield. And I think we look at wins as a big part of it as well. And the fact that one of them is in the college football playoffs, just I believe will push Baker Mayfield over the edge over Lamar Jackson. But certainly it's been a really fun Heisman year between the two quarterbacks and a few running backs in there as well. Bryce Love, Rashard Penny of San Diego State as well, and even Jonathan Taylor. So there's been some great choices this year, but I think it will just go up down to those QBs and Baker Mayfield picking up the Heisman. Yeah, I mean, there's really no wrong choice. If they give it to Lamar Jackson, it's a good choice. If they give it to Baker Mayfield, it's a good choice. It's just one of those things where, you know, one edges the other in particular categories. But again, there's really no wrong choice between the two. And then 
we're going to be giving our college football predictions when it comes to the college football playoffs a little bit closer on uh, later in the end of the month of December, probably a little after Christmas, which will probably get us closer to uh, most likely podcast episode 18 or 20 around that uh, March. So we're certainly heading towards the uh, 20s near soon as we're doing episode 15. But Jose, let's get into the NFL. And last podcast, we spoke about the New York Giants, and we spoke about them benching Eli Manning, ending his 210 consecutive game-started streak. On Monday, though, Ben McAdoo, the head coach, fired. GM Jerry Reese fired as well, and the Giants have announced that Eli Manning will start this week versus the Dallas Cowboys, and Jose, for starters... It just does not seem like the Giants have a clue what they are doing right now. Because one week, they're saying we're going to bench him, the coach, GM, owner, all in agreement. And then a day later, two out of the three are fired. Well, first things first, I haven't been this excited since the Giants won the Super Bowl again against the Patriots. So kudos to the New York Giants for firing Ben McAdoo and uh, Jerry Reese. First things first, McAdoo, I mean you got to give him some sort of credit because he did make the playoffs last year with this Giants team in his first year. It was a good run last year that obviously didn't end well. This year has been very abysmal. McAdoo, I think, is just not a good head coach when it's all said and done. And give credit to the Giants. They didn't want to fire him midseason. Remember, John Mara had said that they weren't going to make any changes midseason. And I understand that. They wanted to give Ben McAdoo a chance to finish out the year. You know, you never want to say, hey, I was the coach for a year and a half. At least I was the coach for two full seasons. But too much was just going wrong to not fire Ben McAdoo right now. I mean, the one that did surprise me was the firing for Jerry Reese. I mean, I would hate to place too much blame on Reese for this year, but Jerry Reese is still to blame for a lot of things that has gone wrong with the Giants over the past couple of years, for never really drafting an appropriate running back, for never really drafting an appropriate offensive lineman. To me, he gets a pass on Eric Flowers because when they drafted Eric Flowers, he was supposed to be a good offensive lineman prospect. That's more on Eric Flowers for not panning out. But, you know, he's never really gotten a good offensive line together for Eli. Um, you can argue that he never really got a decent linebacker either in all the years that he was a GM, especially since all the veterans left like OCU Manura and Michael Strahan. Um, so Jerry Reese does have a lot of blame on his shoulders, although this year I wouldn't have blamed him as much as I did in the past. But it's a new era for the Giants. I wouldn't say that they don't know that they don't have a clue what they're doing because to me, benching Eli sounds like it was a, a plan, you know, put together by Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese because they legit wanted to see what they had on the roster. Now that you flip over and you give the keys to Steve Spagnolo, it's a different philosophy. He has different ideas. Spagnolo is not going to just fall in line and do what McAdoo is doing. Spagnolo is going to do his own thing. And I kind of respect that. And Spagnolo thinks that Eli is the perfect choice to close out the season maybe start Eli the rest of the way. You never know. He still might get benched towards the end of the year to start Davis Webb instead. But for right now, Spagnuolo's making his choice by putting Eli back in there. So I wouldn't say the Giants don't know what they're doing. I just think it's a different philosophy from Spagnuolo. And kudos to Spagnuolo for saying, you know what? I'm the interim head coach right now. I'm going to try and secure this head coaching job. And my first choice is to put Eli back in there. For me, I mean... For starters, it just does not seem like the Giants have a clue what they're doing. Uh, you're firing coaches, you're firing general managers, and believe me, I'm so happy they did that. But you can't go if you're general from 
yes, we're okay with benching Eli Manning, the franchise player at the face of this team, to you both fired after that. It just doesn't make sense. For me, the first step as the owner, you have to put your foot down and say, no, we are not benching this Eli Manning at that point. And when you do, I think you go from that to a second mistake, which is, okay, we go from benching him, which is possibly extremely disrespectful to Eli Manning. And I think to Giant fans as well, they took it as like, well, how are you benching our quarterback? And I think that was a little bit more of an outcry to get the firing as well. To now we're going to play him again when it doesn't seem like that's the right move. And it's not the right move when you're talking about a team that currently has the second pick in the draft, is going to need a new general manager, going to need a new head coach, and they're going to draft a quarterback. Because it's highly unlikely you're going to bring in a general manager that's going to bring in the coach he wants, and they're going to choose Eli Manning as their quarterback instead of drafting a quarterback. So in my mind, it seems like the Giants are completely a mess right now, not only because of their record and they have the second pick in the draft, but they're also going from, okay, we're not starting Eli Manning to we're starting Eli Manning. Because this is the perfect time to start Davis Webb. This is the perfect game to start Geno Smith or to start Davis Webb to see what you have outside of Eli Manning, particularly on Davis Webb because I think no Giant fan wants to hear the words, Geno Smith is the starting quarterback week one of the 2018 season. I don't think any Giant fan will be satisfied with that move. But the Giants have to see what they have at with their other quarterback. They have to see what they have out of Davis Webb, and if they don't have an option out of Davis Webb, they're going to draft a quarterback. They're not going to start Eli Manning as their quarterback that season. So the, to me, this is a silly move by the Giants, not the fire under course. I love that. They both had to go. They both needed to go. Jerry Reese should have went a long time before that, considering the man couldn't draft anything outside of the first round. His first round was great. He'd have a couple big hits. But the reason the Giants had so many positions they had to replace in last year's free agent is because they couldn't draft anybody for five years from the second round on. So that man had to go. Jerry Reese had to go. Ben McAdoo, a complete mess of a coach. You truly had to wonder if it was just that the Giants' defense was the reason the Giants made the playoffs last season and had nothing to do with Ben McAdoo, which it really looks like at the end of the day because the Giants' defense was all the Giants had last season. And, again, this becomes a week where I have to ask you, are the Giants making the right move by starting Eli Manning? Well, I think they are because only because, I mean, I will say I agree with you. I I think it's the wrong move by them to kind of go back on their word because it feels like they're only basing it off of fan reaction because fans were so harsh. You know, they're basically saying, Oh, we don't want to disappoint the fans. We don't want you guys to still buy tickets and watch the game. So, Hey, Eli's back in there, but I do think it is the right move to start Eli. Like I said, you don't need five weeks to determine what you have in a quarterback. You've been watching Davis Webb practice constantly throughout the entire year. 
Davis Webb should be putting his reps in, improving in practice, and you can tell what you have just by watching him in practice. Now, the last three weeks of the year, maybe the last two games of the year, that's when I want to see Davis Webb in the game. Um, but if not, it sounds like they're not sold on Davis Webb either. But Steve Spagnuolo has been watching Davis Webb as well too. So and I think I think it's like what you said. A new GM is going to come in here at the end of the day. A new head coach is going to come in at the end of the day. And you can even argue, you just said it, that the new head coach and the new GM is not going to want Eli as their quarterback. They're not going to want Geno Smith as their quarterback. And you can even argue that that new duo is probably not going to want Davis Webb either because they didn't draft Davis Webb. So you know what? They might just be content with saying, hey, let's just let Eli finish out the rest of the year, which is not the end of the world. It's still Eli Manning. And if it, you know what? Honestly, if this is Eli's last year as a New York Giant, he deserves a proper send-off for all that he's done. And if that's letting him play the rest of the way, then so be it. But I think it's a given that we're going to get a new quarterback in the draft class this year with that second pick. So why not just let Eli finish it off and start anew when that new QB gets here next year? Well, let me ask you this, Paul. So the Giants bench Eli Manning, and they could have done it. They didn't have to do it against Oakland. They could have waited a week, but they chose it against the Oakland Raiders in Oakland, so far away from New York where no Giant fans are going to mainly be. Uh, and well, there was about they, 10 of them in the stands. <laughs> fair enough, but pretty much more than the home crowd of late and support of. Yeah, but, I mean, mirror image there. Right. Now the Giants are home again. They're playing a division rival, the Dallas Cowboys. They're playing next week a division rival, Washington Reds. Uh, not Washington. They're playing division rival, Philadelphia Eagles. Their last game of the season is another home game against the Washington Redskins. Uh, in between the Eagles and the Redskins is the Arizona Cardinals at Arizona. So if the Giants are going to go with the idea logic of we're not going to start somebody outside of Eli Manning at home, especially in two division games between the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. All right, I buy that. But that does mean in two weeks from now, when the Giants play the Arizona Cardinals, Eli Manning shouldn't be starting. And that should be Davis Webb. And then come week 17, it should be Davis Webb again. So if you're doing this where the Giants are going to start Eli Manning this week because it could be a crowd send-off. It could be the division rival game against the Dallas Cowboys, and you want to try and have it on a little bit of a higher note for possibly Eli Manning's last game as a New York Giant because it could be down to just a select few at this point. I, I think the Giants are just using Manning as a scapegoat. They were trying to use Manning as a scapegoat last week. It didn't work in the favor of Ben McAdoo or Jerry Reese. And I think they're more Eli Manning is just out here this week because he's protecting a rookie quarterback from starting at home for a team that's been atrocious all year long. And I don't think any Giants fan is going to look at Davis Webb starting as a bad thing. I think they're going to look at Davis Webb starting as, okay, we are making a way, oh, uh, making a push away from Eli Manning, and we are going the route of we're either drafting a young quarterback or we're going with Davis Webb. And at the end of the day, you have to know what you have in Davis Webb. You're not going to know much because the Giants don't have many wide receivers. They can't protect the ball. Uh, they can't protect the quarterback, and they can't run the football. But you're going to know a little bit. And that's what you're going to need to know at the end of the day in order to make a draft, in order to say, hey, 
quarterback is already on our team or we need to get a new one. So I don't really, again, I don't agree with the Giants starting Eli Manning this week because I think they have to look at what they have at their other quarterback positions of Davis Webb and even or even Geno Smith. But certainly I'm just happy that Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese is gone. Thankfully, that is the best part of the season as what has been a complete letdown for the New York Giants. With the other team in New York, the New York Jets, we heard Todd Bowles talk about Josh McCown saying he's going to start the rest of the season. But Jose, can the Jets consider McCown for the future of next year than just this season? Well, first things first, I think the Jets deserve a lot of credit for you know being a team that you know everybody thought was going to go zero and sixteen or one and fifteen or whatever. Um, you know, Jets have been playing really good football as of late, and you know what? They may not be in the playoff hunt, but at least they're still in it, so to speak. You know, mathematically, they're still in it for a playoff push, for a playoff spot. And they're playing really good football. I mean, that game against the Chiefs on Sunday, it wasn't the most perfect game in the world. But how awesome was it to watch McCown get fired up on the sidelines? You know, to watch Robbie Anderson make a couple of red-hot catches and get fired up. To watch that defense get fired up after every stop they made. If you're a Jets fan, you love that kind of football. I mean, one, you're not... You know, you can't get distracted from the fact that, yes, the Jets aren't going to go anywhere. The Jets aren't ready to make a playoff run or a playoff push or a title push. But as a Jets fan, you get excited to see that this team has potential to play at a higher level and that the plan is just getting started. Now, when you get to McCowan, he deserves a lot of credit. Because when you're brought in as a stopgap, you're 38 years old, at some point you know you're probably going to get benched for a younger QB, especially when the Jets have two of them on their roster and it wasn't even a given that McCowan was going to start this year. For Josh McCowan, it's your job to push those guys away, to make sure and say, hey, I only want them starting over me if they're ready. Well, guess what? Bryce Petty and Christian Hackenberg or Hackenbush, whatever his name is, they're not ready, and they're not better than Josh McCowan, and McCowan's proved that. McCowan deserves a tremendous amount of credit for playing extremely good football down the stretch this year. And you could say what you want. You could say they haven't been facing that good of teams, but McCowan really does deserve credit for all that he's done this year for the Jets. Now, as we mentioned, going into next year, what does this mean? Does that mean McCowan comes back? I'm okay with Josh McCowan coming back next year, if and only if it's on a one-year deal and you have another rookie QB. Let's say the Jets go out and draft a QB this year in the draft, or if they trade up and get a QB, only if there's another Jets QB holding the clipboard. That way, when McCowan falters, that QB can take their, take his spot or... If when that QB is ready, he can take McCowan's spot. I don't want McCowan signing a three-year deal. This is Ryan Fitzpatrick 2.0 all over again. I don't want them giving all their trust in to McCowan, knowing that he might not produce the same results next year. If I'm the Jets, does McCowan deserve a shot to be back next year? Definitely, but I want to see it on a one-year deal. I want to see it with a better rookie quarterback holding a clipboard behind him, ready to take over one when he falters or one when that QB is ready. Josh McCowan on the season. Nearly 2,900 passing yards, 18 touchdowns, 8 interceptions. He even has over 100 rushing yards, 5 rushing touchdowns. That's more than you can could have asked for, honestly. Yeah, you're, you're talking about a 2-1 to one touchdown to turnover ratio because 23 total touchdowns to just 11 turnovers this season. And we're at, what, 13 weeks for McCown? 12 weeks? Certainly. He's put up phenomenal numbers 
better than anybody really could have expected from a town. They've won more games than they won last season, or they're at the exact uh, same number because, and again, this is a team where I think most Jet fans were expecting maybe one win this year. And you go out and you beat the Kansas City Chiefs. And yes, the Chiefs have lost four games in a row now, but the Chiefs were one of the best teams in the league throughout this season early on. And the Chiefs were considered a Super Bowl contender five weeks into the NFL season. You put up 38 points on the Chiefs. You play phenomenal. You rush for two touchdowns. And as you said, you could see it on the sidelines for him. And he has made it entertaining football to watch the New York Jets right now. And there's no belief in those two other quarterbacks of Bryce Petty or Christian Haddenberg. Because if they had any belief at the end of the day, you don't pit the 38-year-old. You pit the young kids. If you had anything, just a glimpse of belief on either one of them, you choose the kid over the 38-year-old, especially in a season where you're out of the playoffs already. So, to me, I I agree with you. If you do consider McCown for the future, which the future could be simply saying, hey, we drafted a guy in the first round to hold a clipboard. That's all the future has to be. We've seen it time again in the NFL. Jared Dolph is a good example. He held a clipboard for the entire season. The guy before him was not doing that well, but you still stuck it out and you just had Dolph wait and learn. That could be the Jets. The next year, you start a 38, 39-year-old quarterback. You have your first-round draft pitch. Sit and hold a clipboard. We're seeing that with Kansas City with Alex Smith. And we question whether Alex Smith will be there next season. We don't expect him to be. I think that's the role the Jets have to take with McCown. Like you said, a one-year deal. Because any more of it is just hard to believe. And, again, you don't need another... Ryan Fitzpatrick movement going on with the New York Jets. You need to see more future development from quarterback for the New York Jets. And that can easily start with him taking a clipboard for an entire season. But McCown has certainly earned his spot to start the remainder of the year. Especially if neither one of those guys in Bryce Petty or Christian Adler have made any improvements. And we're near, what, 14 weeks in? With preseason games, plenty of practices... And no improvement of belief. The Jets should have zero quarterbacks going into that season. Because they should be getting rid of both of them at that point. Because if you can't do anything to bypass a 38-year-old. What does it say for yourselves at the end of the day? So there's certainly areas where the Jets can improve. Whether they want to go and hold off one more season. Use a first-round pick on a different role than a quarterback this year. But... I, I definitely agree. I definitely like, you know, the Jets on an idea of holding a clipboard and going with McCown for net season. But long term, no, not not anything more than a year. Staying with the Jets division, uh, can we call it a division rival or just a division bully? But the New England Patriots continue to roll as they blew past the Buffalo Bills on. Sunday, and yet again, they looked like one of the best teams in the lead. There are four teams now with the record of 10-2. and two. Uh, The Patriots have won, I think, now eight games in a row. Uh, but 
Patriots have a couple things going on on the sidelines and during that game. We're going to talk a little bit about it. I want to start with the Patriots sideline. Tom Brady yelling on the sidelines at his offensive coordinator. And New York Giants wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. saying he's been doing the same thing. And he's been seeing Tom Brady do this for years. But Brady always gets away with it compared to Odell. And Jose, is Odell right? Oh, he's definitely right. And it's not just Odell. It's, you know, it's things that Cam Newton do and, and things that, and you, you know, Cam Newton, when he celebrates and when you see Aaron Rodgers celebrate, they praise Aaron Rodgers, but they bash Cam Newton. Um, it, time, time and time again, you keep seeing this and there's a series of reasons for it. And I hate, you know, I don't want to be that guy. that's always going to bring up the race card, but you know, it, a race does play a big part of it into it as well too. I mean, we saw it with Cam Newton, Cam Newton gets a lot of criticism for doing a lot of things because he is a black quarterback. And, you know, with the touchdown dances, you know, they say all these nasty things. But when Aaron Rodgers does a discount double check, he gets a commercial from it, from State Farm. So, you know, there's a lot of double standards that we hold a lot of athletes to. And it's the same thing with Odell Beckham. Odell Beckham yells at his offensive coordinator. You know, it's, it's, it's labeled as thuggish. It's labeled as wrong. But when Tom Brady does it, obviously it's labeled as, oh, well, he's just standing up for himself or he's just standing up for the team and his offense or whatever. Again, there's numerous reasons why. I know you're going to touch upon some more reasons too, but I think a big part of it too is that we have to at least you know consider is the race card as well. Yeah, I certainly think um, as you brought up, it's an enlightening moment where is it possibly because of a white QB versus an African-American wide receiver or an African-American quarterback and how we hold those two to different um, standards. Uh, you know, I, I do think Tom Brady is held to a different standard than anybody else in the NFL. And I do also think that's because, uh, I'll use this word, the goat. Uh, it's the first time I think I've ever used that, but it does describe <laughs> Tom Brady. Uh, and, and I do believe that it's like, and, and Odell is 100% right. When Brady flips out, we immediately say, oh, it's his competitive nature, his desire to win. And when Odell does his sideline stuff, when he celebrates a touchdown, and he or he gets he starts hitting a net, and the difference between those two is the net hits back. Um, we we say Odell's being a clown, or Odell is not putting this team first, and there's. Uh, obviously, that's not true. Odell wants to win just as much. He's just as much as a competitor. And we've seen both of them do the same things on the sidelines at time. And I think Odell even posted a video of the two of them flipping out on the sidelines. Uh, uh, nearly a 30-second or, uh, or a minute-long video of just different things that are exactly the same. But we do hold these two players to different standards. Um, it, you know, one of those cases may be Odell playing in New York compared to Tom Brady playing in New England, where you could say the fans in New England will see Tom Brady as he can do no wrong, whereas in New York media, uh, it's the moment you do something wrong is the moment we jump on it. And, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you do type of thing. So I think there's a couple different factors. I certainly do... I uh, believe it could be a, a race factor, especially. I'm not saying everyone considers it, but there are people that could easily play into that factor. I do believe easily we hold Cam Newton and Tom Brady to different standards as well as we hold plenty of different players to standards. And 
winning is a key factor to that at the end of the day as well. So I, I certainly see what Odell Beckham's saying. I I believe that it is or it should be an enlightening moment to a lot of people uh, when it comes to the NFL of how we look at certain players because a lot of them we can look at as the exact same way. When we saw Odell Beckham Jr.'s antics on the field or him on the sideline get upset because his team wasn't winning, the moment I thought of was Des Bryant because we saw Des Bryant a year ago doing pretty much the exact same thing, but he wanted to win. So I, I think it's still just a competitive nature uh, of two great players, Odell being one of the best wide receivers, Brady being the best quarterback, and we see them on the sidelines either trying to get a team motivated, upset that their play is not going right because they expect great outcomes at the end of the day. They expect to score. They expect to win. And that is the nature of when you are one of the best players at your position. So I, I certainly get what Odell is saying in that regard. Uh, as well in that game, Rob Gronkowski took a cheap shot. Player was on the ground, pretty much out of balance. And Gronkowski went down to the ground and really hit him and injured the Buffalo Bills player as well. And Jose, this was a dirty move. And the NFL suspended Gronk for one game. I know we're talking about Gronk and we just got followed by... Uh, Rob Gronkowski's brother, Chris Gronkowski, on Twitter, so that was a cool moment. But we still have to talk about Gronk here. Did the NFL get it right by suspending Gronk for one game? Yeah, I mean, thanks to thanks to Chris for, for the follow on Twitter. No offense for what I'm about to say. But, no, I mean, yeah, it was it was a dirty move by Rob Gronkowski, and they didn't get the suspension right. Uh, but then again, the question is, what is the right suspension for this? And, again, this goes back to the NFL not being able to appropriately give out their suspensions, you know, there's still no clear-cut criteria for what, you know, what action equals what suspension. Does a dirty move like that equal one game? Does it equal two? Does another does another action equal three games? You know, there's no there's no standard to what we're holding players to, and until that, we're going to see a lot of inconsistency throughout the game and in a lot of suspensions. I mean, honestly, what Gronkowski did, it was foul, it was intentional, and it probably deserves two games, maybe even a stretch to say three. I think two is a good number, but to only get one, I mean, to me, that's like a slap on the wrist. You should miss two games, honestly, and, and, and pay a heavy fine for what happened on that field that day. But honestly, again, I'm not surprised that they only gave him one because there's no there's no consistency to these suspensions. We don't know what's worth one game and what's worth two anymore because every time something happens, we get a different number for different players, and I just don't get it anymore. I can't say if it's right or wrong because I don't even know what's right and what's wrong because there's no thought process being given out. Yeah, this is... This is a week where we're just we're going to get into the Steelers Bengals Nets, but uh, Juju Smith Schuster is a good example because he also got suspended, and now we're looking at as did what Rob Gronkowski do, and Juju Smith Schuster do, the same, or is one worse than the other, and and one is by far worse in my mind, and that's Rob Gronkowski's. They're both bad hits. They they both shouldn't happen. They both should result in a suspension, but. When I say suspension, I don't mean a one-game suspension for both of them. This is one where I think the NFL did get it wrong, and you pointed out exactly perfectly. The NFL has not really stated any criteria of what is considered a one-game, what is considered a two-game, or what could be more than that in a suspension. 
uh, we almost thought we saw that when it came to the Michael Trabtree and Aqib Talib fight. Okay, that was different than AJ Green and Jalen Ramsey's. Uh, th- that was different than Mike Evans. Uh, but one thing we're not seeing is the NFL has to do one thing better first. They have to eject players. This is going to be something that the NFL has to put on to refs. Juju Smith's you know, it's great that he's getting suspended, but you want to really try and affect that outcome of a hit not to happen in a football game? Eject them. You have a player that hits a player as well, or you have a player that goes after, like Gronkowski did, one that's completely down on the ground and trying to take a forearm to the back of the helmet and, and look to injure and injure a player. You have to eject that player, and then you can also suspend that player. But we haven't seen that this year that often. We saw it happen in the Jalen Ramsey and A.J. Green fight. We saw it happen for Crabtree. We didn't see it happen for Mike Evans. And so there's there is a lot of mistakes going on in this part where the NFL has to really sit down. This has been a bad year when it comes to suspensions because of on-the-field incidents. Normally we're talking about off-the-field incidents, and we can't go a week or two without it being on the field with suspended players. And they have to sit down. They have to talk about you need to maybe make an ejection quicker. You have to take a stand immediately on these type of plays. Because then they can avoid certain hits, maybe. Or then they can avoid a situation later in a game to continue. At the end of the day, Gronk should have been suspended, in my mind, for two or three games, like you said. Maybe three is a little high, but we're talking about the intent to injure, in my mind. And the intent to injure and to injure a player. That's got to be more than one game at the end of the day. It's got to be more than just fighting on a field for a moment. You see that in hockey, where they literally fight on the ice. There's got to be a little bit more than that when it comes to an intent to injure a player. And that's what we saw Gronkowski do, and that's also what we saw with Juju Smith-Schuster do as well. And, uh, do you want to go further than that, or do we want to cover the Steelers and the Bengals? No, yeah, let's go with the Steelers and Bengals, because right, a lot Steel- of the similar topics. Yeah. Steelers and Bengals, uh, damn... The Steelers would come back to win 23-20, to but the main conversation from that game was not the final score. Uh, Juju Smith-Susis spending one game for a hit on Vontez Burfitt. Uh, is, and really, this went from being a game to really a game with out-of-control hard hits between these two teams. Uh, of course, we're hoping uh, Pittsburgh Steelers' Ryan Chazier, who's undergoing spinal stabilization surgery uh, will get a quick recovery as he was transferred to a Pittsburgh hospital. But, Jose, what are your thoughts from this Monday night football game? Well, first of all, it was a shame because it was a great win by the Steelers. Come from behind, you know, Bengals' playoffs hopes were really on the line too. They couldn't really afford to lose a game for the rest of the year. And the Steelers really stomped them out. Chris Boswell with another go-ahead field goal. I mean, so overall, a great game by Ben Roethlisberger. And again, this is Ben Roethlisberger who you know, three weeks into the season was talking about he didn't know if he had it anymore, and now he's having another great game for the Steelers. So on top of that, it was a really weird game, and it's a shame that the end result is that we're talking about all these hits and who should be suspended and who should not be suspended. Now, here's the thing. It is the NFL, and it is full-contact football. 
And I totally understand players are getting mad at the NFL for saying they want to crack down on tackling and stuff like that. Because at the end of the day, we are playing full contact football. It's not flag football. It's not touch football. It's not three-second hold. So injuries are going to happen. And these players do know what they're signing up for. What I do have an issue with, though, is the intentional hits. And I don't think it's that hard for the NFL to say, hey, let's crack down on the intentional helmet-to-helmet hits. So Juju Smith-Schuster is a perfect example. That hit, clearly intentional, clearly could have been preventable, clearly was going after Burfitt for the hit that he probably did on Antonio Brown last year or whatever already dirty plays that Vontae Burfitt does. Vontae Burfitt could not defend himself, had no clue, no clue Juju Smith was coming on in the area. And then on top of that, Juju Smith decides to taunt him by standing over him. Yeah, that tells me that you did it on purpose. That was totally uncalled for. Now, the hit that was done on Antonio Brown by Iloka, that one I would give a pass to only because Antonio Brown jumps into the air, comes down with the football. Iloka's just trying to get a tackle on him. Iloka doesn't know he's going to hit him in the helmet as he's coming down after jumping for the ball. So that one I can give a little bit of a pass to. To me, what the NFL needs to do is crack down on these intentional hits like the one that Juju Smith did to Vontae's Burfitt, even though Vontae Burfitt, you know, we hope he gets well soon, but he's done a lot of dirty plays in the past, still doesn't deserve to be blindsided by Juju and completely knocked into oblivion, basically. Yeah, and the hit on Antonio Brown, it was originally a one-game suspension on the Bengals' safety, but reduced down to a $34,000 fine. Yeah, because you can you can see where that one w- probably was not intentional. You, you know what I'm saying? It really depends on the play, too. And I forgot, I'm sorry I'm drawing a blank on his name, but one of the safeties for the Steelers said it yesterday when he was going on his rant about full-contact football. You know, a couple of years back, on Andy Dalton throws a pass to Tyler Eifert. He overthrows the pass. Eifert has to dive for the football. And now a player who is aiming for a player's gut when he goes to tackle him ends up colliding with them. That's not exactly the safety's fault that the quarterback threw a bad pass that led to the player diving when the safety is already in motion to tackle him from the waist down. You know, so it's one of those things where you have to analyze it and say, was this a clear-cut intentional hit? And I understand player safety is a number one key, but sometimes these helmet-to-helmet hits are going to happen. To me, it's a, I have an issue with, is it intentional or not? If you're headhunting after somebody, you deserve to be ejected. You deserve to be suspended for however amount of games. If you're doing it intentionally, you're a terrible human being and you should be ejected from the game, suspended. If it's an accidental play... I can't suspend you for doing something accidental. One of the things that really stood out to me in this game was, like you said, it didn't even feel like a football game at some points, and it felt almost like a brawl at times, out of control, hard hits. Uh, you could hear it in really like Gruden as well as speaking out on it. It just didn't feel right. Uh, as to watch a football game like that between the Steelers and Bengals. And that's really been the case between these two teams who really can't stand each other. Uh, when you're talking about also like player safety and Steelers, Mitch, uh, I think it was Mitch, Mitch uh, Tunnel or um, as I'm looking up his name as well, talked about it like I played to play football. I signed up to play f- uh, full hard speed. Yeah, Mitch, uh, Mike Mitchell. It was on a wild rant. I signed up to play full speed contact football. That's great. 
But when you have issues with CTE, when you ha- when that's a big outcome in the NFL right now, and you talk about and you with like guys like Steve Young talked about when he played in that full contact football time, and he has a hard time watching the Steelers Bengals game because he knows what's going on with players that he played with or before his era as well with CTE. There's just not a need for these type of hits. There, there shouldn't be a need for this. There shouldn't be a reason why the Bengals and Steelers since 2015 have over a thousand penalty yards between these two teams, the most in the NFL. There's, there's a point where this type of violence in the game, it can't be good for the game. It can't be good for the NFL. It's not really, yes, there are people that enjoy that violent part about football but there is a rare amount that enjoy that part about football more than just the people that just enjoy watching football and we saw a different game than a football game on Monday night and Jose this type of game where you're seeing these type of hits this type of violence on the field uh, the, the the really by both teams almost an intent to injure at times that can't be good for the game in your mind, is it? I mean, no, it's not, obviously. But again, it's, it's, it is mainly when these two teams get together. And I think Ben Roethlisberger said it perfectly, too. When, when the Steelers play the Ravens, we know it's going to be physical. But when the Steelers face the Bengals, it's going to be physical, but he's afraid someone's going to get hurt. And, and that's the thing. And, and some of these hits are accidental, but some of them aren't. And like I said, the one with Juju Smith, when he laid out Burfitt, that was totally uncalled for. That should not happen. Juju Smith should be serving a harsher suspension than one game, especially for taunting afterwards, too, clearly making it known that, hey, this was an intentional hit. I was coming after you to get you. And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, well, Burford should be aware that Juju was in the area. No, because when you're trying to tackle the, fo- the guy with the football, your focus is on the guy with the football, not the guy that's coming at you at full speed behind you or to your left out of your peripheral vision to knock you in the head. So it's not good for the game of football. It's going to be hard to cut down on a lot of these hits, though, because some of them are unintentional. But again, I, I mean, if we start with cracking down on the ones that are intentional, I bet you'll see a major change ahead. Yeah, and this is another one where it's like, just like you can't hit a, a blind receiver because he can't see it coming. It's the same way with Vontez Burford here. And we know that, yeah, he, it's tough. And we heard on this uh, after the game, Antonio Brown is screaming out karma during Juju Smith-Schuster's uh, interview, talking about the Vontaze Burford hit. I mean, that's not what you want to hear. That, that, that is the idea of what these two teams are doing right now. It's, it's the attempt where they're coming out to injure each other. And that's not what you want to see on a football field. You want to see a game. You don't want to see a brawl happen between these two type of teams. And there has to be a moment where the NFL has to look at this week and say, hey, we have to do a better job. We have to do a better job of ejecting players instead of just looking at it as, okay, he's going to get his first flag on this and a second one and he's out of the game. No. On a moment where you take it and hit a defenseless player, like Grant did on a player on the Bills player that was on the ground, like Juju Smith did, like Mike Evans did, you have to just eject these players. It's a one and done. 
there's always another game for these players, but you cannot put them in a situation where their intent is to injure somebody. And there has to be an immediate ejection on them. And maybe it will cut down on these type of hits. Maybe it will cut down on those type of situations. But with it not being, I think that's a problem already. And then when you talk about CTE, and we talked about the um, the crown of the helmet, and we see Ryan Sears in the hospital. Why? Because his head was in a. If his head was like two degrees lower, it, he would have been perfectly fine with his hit. But because he's leading with his helmet sometimes, or we see players do that, it causes possible injuries. It causes possible concussions. It causes all these different problems. And I think the NFL has to look at better case for these helmets and look for more of player safety than they're doing. And this game, I think, truly pointed that out. And that's what I think is a real takeaway from this Monday night game, is safety and the NFL needs to go by a bigger and a harsher way to go through it to get to that safety part. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that a couple of days after a game like this, Roger Goodell gets a contract extension. Yeah. <laughs> I, let's, let's jump right into that. He got a $200 million contract extension for the next five years. He's going to make $40 million a year on average, which is well more than any NFL player will be making over that time span. And he's also made $200 million since 2006, which is more than any NFL player has made since 2006. And it, it, Jose, it's a little interesting because we saw so many off-the-field things with Jerry Jones and Roger Nadell with Colin Kaepernick going on and NFL owners and Yadel and different things like Tom Brady. You know, this is a little bit surprising to hear that he gets so much money on a new contract. Yeah, it's surprising. Uh, I know a lot of people obviously tried to stop it, but at this point you can't really do anything about it. I will say, though, that with this new contract and with how expensive it is, all eyes will be on Roger Goodell. So if things don't start to change, expect more people to be you know, on Roger Goodell's tail than before, that's for sure. And, yeah, it's certainly uh, surprising a little bit. I didn't expect him to be getting nearly that much. I know he wanted a private jet in his in his contract negotiating. So it's, it's interesting on that part. But at the end of the day, I think if the NFL is making money and the owners are making money, you're not going to have a problem with the commissioner. And I think that was a big look at it as well. And you're talking about a person that's what getting played from the owners uh, about 1.3 million by each owner, essentially even less than that. So it's not it's not too much if you look at it that way, on that factor. But at the end of the day, it's still a lot of money for a commissioner to make money than more than the players are making money. So I think that's a little bit of a interesting scenario there. Uh, Jose, one of the teams that we spoke about last week on our podcast was the Eagles and the Seahawks, a preview of the game. You had the Seahawks win that game, I had the Eagles. And one of the things for you, what stood out more, the Eagles' loss or the Seahawks' win, which stands out to you more as we're getting closer to the playoffs? To me, it's the Seahawks' win. Uh, You know, the Eagles are kind of in cruise control right now. I think they're... You know, they know they're going to the playoffs. They have the NFC East wrapped up. Um, you know, they're no, they know they're going to be a number one or two seed come the playoffs. Obviously, they want the number one seed. But, 
you know, they know they're going to be a top-seeded team in the playoffs. They know where they're going. They know where their team stands. I mean, and yeah, you would like to get a win over, you know, super, former Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. But at the end of the day, if, if you're the Philadelphia Eagles, you know where you stand. For the Seahawks, this is a big win because you took down one of the best teams in the NFC. Um, you're still fighting for that division against the L.A. Rams. You're still fighting for a wild card spot, which is not a lock, which they don't, they're not even in a wild card spot right now. They're still behind the Panthers and Falcons, I believe. So No, they have the sits, I think. They're eight, oh, they do have the sits Yeah, now? they're a game up on the Falcons with the Falcons uh, losing, I think, last week. Well, either way, they really can't bank on that wild card spot because, like you said, they're only behind. The Falcons yep. are only behind by one game. So for the Seahawks, they need to keep winning. They really can't afford to lose, and they're doing it with a lot of injuries too. No Richard Sherman. Uh, their backfield's pretty hurt. They're giving up a lot of yardage on the run. Uh, you know, and again, and this offense is still not as dynamic as it used to be when Marshawn used to be here with Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson still is doing a lot of the work by himself, um, and he's not 100% healthy either. So for the Seahawks, it's a big win for them against a great team in the NFC. Again, right now, they're not a lock to make the playoffs. The Eagles are. So for the Seahawks, they needed that win, and it was a big win for them. Yeah, the interesting for me part is like the Eagles have not beat a team with a winning record this year. Uh, so I, I certainly am looking at their next game against the Rams and see how they'll do against that one. But I'll ignore this one saying it's extremely hard to get a win in Seattle, especially in December. That's when the Seahawks really come alive. So for me, like you said, Seahawks win stands out more. You're talking about getting a win against the Eagles who were on a nine-game winning streak, ten and one at the time, and Russell Wilson. I mean, this guy looks like the MVP for me. He's the MVP of the season. He may have not have the best stats, but you talked about the most valuable player to a team right now. That's Russell Wilson because he is the only player doing anything offensively for the Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks defense is pretty much injured, and it's not what it once was. But we saw a great game from the Seahawks defense against Carlson Wentz and the Eagles. We still see how well Russell Wilson is doing with really not much to work with. Seahawks are going to have a tough matchup this week also. We're going to talk about that game as well. But for me, the Seahawks win stands out a lot in a real must-win scenario as they're able to get a one-game lead over the Falcons. And as you said, it's such a tight race for that playoff spots with the Seahawks and the Panthers both 8 and 4 and the Falcons sitting right behind at 7 and 5 it's extremely close and it could result in a team with a 10 win record not making the playoffs so this is going to be coming where every win matters even more crucial than the Nets and for Seattle that win was even more important than the Eagles picking up the win on that one Jose Last week, we spoke of a couple games that we thought were some really good matchups, and I picked out a few more. Uh, there are some really great games in this week, and want to just break down a couple of them with you, see who you got in these games as well. So let's start off with, we just talked about the Eagles. The Eagles are 10-2. and two. They're going to be playing the 9-3 and three Rams on the road are the Eagles this week. Who you got in this one? Yeah, I'm going to roll with the Eagles on this one. I think it's very rare. I think it's very doubtful that they're going to lose in back-to-back weeks. You mentioned it before. They don't have many wins against teams with over 500 records. So I will say if the Eagles lose this game, obviously they're still going to make the playoffs. But if the Eagles lose this game, I will be officially concerned about the Eagles going forward into the playoffs, honestly, even though as good as they've been. 
But I like them against the Rams. I think they're a more complete team. Uh, I think the Rams are still the Cinderella team. Don't get me wrong. I think the Rams are for real. I think they'll make some noise in the playoffs. But it's almost like I'm watching the Rams and I'm waiting for the clock to strike midnight, so to speak, on the Cinderella story. Like, I'm just waiting for things to fall apart at the right moment, which is kind of sad because I really enjoy watching the Rams do well. I mean, I love Jared Goff. I love the way Gurley's played this week, uh, this year. I love the new head coach. and I love the way he's implementing confidence in this team, how they look defensively. Even Sammy Watkins looks a little bit better going down the stretch now. I know a lot of that is because Robert Woods is out. But again, a guy like Robert Woods, like who was Robert Woods before this year? He's having a phenomenal year. So everything's going into the right moment for the Rams. But I still have this doubt in the back of my mind saying when it matters the most, I feel like the Rams are going to drop the ball. I hope I'm wrong, but for now I'm going to roll with the Eagles because I just realistically I can't see the Rams going all the way and finishing this thing off. It's been a great year, but I'm just waiting for them to drop the ball, honestly. So certainly all signs should point in the Rams winning this damn East Coast team, traveling West Coast, never easy on that aspect. But it's very tough for me to put the Eagles losing two straight games in a row. I like the Eagles in this one. I think when you look at it as well, the Eagles – didn't really have much of a running game going against Seattle. The Rams give up a lot of rushing yards throughout this season. I think you can expect Jai and LeGarrette Blunt, especially Ajay. I'm waiting for him to truly break out on this Eagles team. He's had some good games, but overall, he hasn't really broken out. I think this is that game where he really kits off. For me, I'm looking at that. I think the Eagles defense will be able to contain Todd Gurley and Jared Goff. Gurley's been a lot of the key of the offense, especially with Robert Woods out right now. He may play Woods this week, but overall, I'm taking the Eagles in this one. Just hard to pitch a team that's been so great this season, losing two games in a row in back-to-back games, even with the Eagles having to yet again travel all the way to Los Angeles. Los Angeles, because I don't believe they went from Seattle to Los Angeles to stay the week. I think they might have went home after the game against the Seattle Seahawks. So I have the Eagles winning that one against the Rams. We talked about the Seahawks as well. Well, Seahawks are another great game. They're eight and four, and they're taking on the eight and four Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, in what really wouldn't you expect it? You didn't expect this to be a matchup that would be such. A great on paper come week 14 to start the season. But the Jaguars with one of the best defenses this season, if not the best defense, versus Russell Wilson, who in my mind is the MVP this year. But, Jose, who do we have in this one? I'm actually rolling with the Jaguars here on this one. I think, um, you know, they have a great run game, and the Seahawks allow, you know, if not the most yardage in the NFL when it comes to the run. I mean, they had a good week last week against the Eagles, and like I said, um, you know, the Seahawks do know when to come alive in the month of December, but I'm rolling with the Jaguars on this one. They're coming off a huge win last week uh, for the Jaguars, a game where, get this, Blake Bortles did not throw an interception in that game. That might have been the first of his career, just saying. But I think Blake Bortles is playing with a ton of confidence right now, even though I think he's still garbage. I think this all this, I think this winning season has put a lot of confidence in him. Uh, too bad it's going to suck when Eli Manning takes his job next year. But nonetheless, Blake Bortles is playing with a full head of confidence now, I think. And uh, you're looking at a scenario where I think the Jaguars can go in there and get a win over the Seahawks and really cement that division for themselves when it comes to the uh, AFC South. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the Jaguars' schedule, and I originally had the Jaguars winning this game, but looking at the schedule, they've played the Colts, Cardinals, Browns, Chargers, Bengals, and Colts the last six weeks. They really haven't faced a challenging, formidable opponent. 
in that time span, and I don't know if they, you really put yourself in the mindset ready for the Seattle Seahawks type of team, but it's going to rely on the Jacksonville Jaguars defense. If they're able to contain Russell Wilson, then they'll easily win this game, uh, regardless if Bortles throws an interception or four type of thing, or turns the ball over. Uh, to me, it's going to be an interesting matchup on how those two do against each other, Seattle's offense versus the Jaguars' defense. I'm very much interested in this game, but I'm going to give the edge to the Seattle Seahawks. They play extremely well in December throughout the last few years when it gets cold, when the time is towards the end of the season, when it really counts. That's when we've always seen the Seahawks play extremely well. I expect them to continue that and picking up the win as well. So right now we're 2-2 two and two on the same parts of Eagles and Seahawks last year we differed. Now we're a little bit of the same. Let's see if we can get a switcher up on this one. The Ravens versus the Steelers in a division matchup. 7-5 and five Ravens sitting with the sixth seed in the playoffs versus the Steelers at 10-2 and two this week. Jose, who do you have in this one with the Ravens on the road? I'm rolling with the Steelers, and it doesn't even matter that the Ravens are on the road or at home. Uh, give the Ravens credit. They've been fighting for that last playoff spot. I think they still might end up with that last playoff spot. But the Steelers are playing on a complete other level right now. I don't think the Steelers can be stopped. Antonio Brown is playing fantastic right now. Le'Veon Bell is playing fantastic. And again, Ben Roethlisberger, a guy that was talking about retirement in weeks one through three and looked awful, is coming alive right now and playing fantastic. Their kicker, Crick Boswell, what is it now, four games he's put them ahead with field goal kicks or something like that? This team is clicking on all cylinders. They're a scary team to watch, and I think the Steelers are going to keep rolling at least until they face the Patriots in Week 15, I believe, which is next week. Yep. Um, yeah, until then, I don't see the Steelers slowing down anytime soon. Uh, give the Ravens credit. Huge win last week for them, including Joe Flacco disturbingly eating the W at the uh, press conference. Um, but I don't see the Ravens being able to beat the Steelers this weekend. So I'm going to take the Ravens in this matchup. And you know, these two teams play each other twice every season. It always seems like they split when they play each other. Steelers took the first one. Gives me a little bit more belief that the Ravens will come out and look for this one as a win, especially on a little bit of a shorter week for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Most likely they'll be out with Ryan Shazier. No Juju Smith-Suster. They could be missing just enough pieces for the Baltimore Ravens to sneak by and take this win. And if they're able to do that, you're talking about an 8-5 and five Ravens team pretty much heading towards the playoffs at that point with a lot of teams right now at sits and sits uh, as the seventh seed in the AFC. I, I do like the Ravens in this one. This is just one of those type of situations where, you know, the Ravens, you wouldn't know it, but they're constantly putting up 20-plus points in games throughout these last few weeks that they could match an offensive game with the Pittsburgh Steelers quietly in doing so, and they still have a great defense that always keeps them in games. They played extremely well against the Lions last week. I like the Ravens to get their eighth win and put the Steelers in for the lost column, and that could be the difference maker on the Pittsburgh Steelers not getting the number one seed over the New England Patriots. Another division rival game, though. The Oakland Raiders at sits and sits versus the Kansas City Chiefs sits and sits. Jose, these teams played earlier this year in a Thursday night game and a one-point difference where the Raiders were able to pick up the win. Who do we have in this one as well? I'm going to roll with the Oakland Raiders in this one. The Chiefs have just been looking terrible 
as of late. Kareem Hunt looked a little bit better in the game against the Jets, but still, there was a couple of drop passes that he did. And Alex Smith, even though he had a decent game yardage-wise, I mean, that defense itself just couldn't come up in the clutch for the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, they gave the Jets six tries to try and score a touchdown because of penalties. They were just horrible, horrible team uh, defensively, especially giving up penalties. Did how many flags they got yesterday, I mean, not last Sunday, too. When I look at the Raiders, I look at a team that's not much better than the Chiefs. This team is not equipped to make a deep run. I don't have any faith in the Raiders at all. But what I do see is I see Marshall and Lynch having back-to-back huge games, a running back that's seeming to come to life right now. And maybe he did it on purpose. Maybe it's just luck that he slacked off the first couple of, I mean, the first portion of the season to come alive now and save his legs. But he's looking like the Marshall and Lynch of old. This defense is starting to look a, look, a, look a little bit scarier. It does concern me that Amari Cooper still might not play. But they do get Michael Crabtree back after the one-game suspension last week. Um, and yes, last week they were able to have Cooper and Crabtree out because they were facing the Giants. This week they're going to need Crabtree back. And now that he is, combine that with the way Marshawn Lynch has been playing, I think the Raiders might be able to sneak, uh, sneak one out here over Kansas City. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you. I mean, credit the Chiefs. They had a phenomenal game, 38-31 to loss against the Jets, which was one of the more entertaining games I've seen the Jets play just back and forth. The Chiefs mainly consisted of huge, huge plays throughout the game. And that was it. That was their offense. Just one or a couple plays here or there that were these big touchdowns. It's hard to buy into those type of plays happening on a consistency. I, as far as I'm concerned, I think you could expect the Raiders to pick up this win. They have their wide receivers back in this one. We've seen the Kansas City Chiefs get demolished by uh Wide receivers all season long. Amari Cooper had an amazing game against the Chiefs the last time these two teams met. And for me, it just pushes it. Even though the Chiefs are home, they're on a four-game losing streak. They have really struggled. You really got to question some parts of almost like a coaching standard of like what went wrong that the Chiefs went this bad. But certainly so. I think the Raiders picked up the win and moved to 7-6, and six, and it could be a Raiders-Chargers battle for the division at that point. So just two more remaining, and that was the Vikings and the Panthers. The Vikings 10-2 and two on the season, picking up the win against the Falcons last week, while the Panthers now 8-4, and four, coming off a loss against the New Orleans Saints. Panthers home in this one, going to need a win, especially when we spoke about Seahawks are in four. The Falcons are seven and five in this one. You constantly have to try and continue to win because 10 wins may not be enough to get you into the playoffs this season for one of those teams. Can the Vikings continue rolling with tied with the Eagles for the best record in the NFC as they are currently, I believe, the number one seed in the NFC? You know, it's funny. I look at the Vikings and I look at their QB scenario where Case Keenum is still leading this this Vikings offense. And Again, he's another guy kind of like the Rams where it's like you're waiting for the, the, uh, the clock to strike midnight on him, right? When is this, this fairy tale story of Case Keenum leading this high dynamic offense going to end? But I don't think it's going to. I think Keenum is really settled in. is playing with a lot of confidence right now. He has receivers to throw to, whether it's Thielen or Stephon Diggs. Um, they have a decent running game up there in Minnesota as well, too. And that defense is what really leads the way, too. When you have that kind of defense, you can play with confidence in offense knowing that that, that lead is not going anywhere. Now, Last week, they covered the hell out of Julio Jones and demolished the, the, the Falcons. So the Panthers, in my eyes, really have no receiving game, kind of like the Falcons do. 
So if they were able to do that to Julio Jones and the Falcons, I can only imagine what they're going to do to the Carolina Panthers. So give me the Vikings in this one, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a lopsided game, 24-7 maybe, um, something along those lines. Yeah, I have the Vikings as well. They have just looked like the best team in the NFC. Eight straight wins, five of those eight wins coming on the road. They've won two back-to-back road wins as well against the Detroit Lions and the Atlanta Falcons. But this team is for real. Their defense is possibly, if not the best in the lead, the second or third best defense in the NFL this season. They hold running bats to very short gains throughout the year. And again, like you said, what they did to Julio Jones, my goodness, we're talking about one of the best wide receivers in football held to practically nothing throughout the game, completely shutting out the entire Falcons offense. This team is phenomenal this year. I expect them to put on the same kind of defensive showing that they put on to the uh, the Falcons. Devin Funches, this is a real test for him because I'm really high on this wide receiver in Funches, but he's certainly got an extremely tough matchup this week against the Minnesota Vikings, and I just don't see the Minnesota Vikings falling in this one. I think they continue the win streak. They get it to nine straight games in a row, and sits of those being road wins as they pick up the win against the Panthers. I don't know if it will be close. Like you said, it just seems like one of those situations where you can expect a two-touchdown victory by the Minnesota Vikings just on how well they have played this season. It's really going to be on how well Carolina's defense can keep them in this game against the Minnesota Vikings like the Falcons were able to do against the Vikings as well. And lastly, tonight's football game. The New Orleans Saints, 9-3, take on the Atlanta Falcons the first time of two times these two teams will meet this season. Falcons at 7-5. This is practically a must-win football game for them. If they fall to 7-6, and six, you'll be looking at two games out, depending on how the Seahawks and Panthers do at that point. It puts you in a really bad situation. Can the Falcons pick up the win, or are we going to look at the Saints beating up on what has always been their situation between these two teams? I think this is going to be a really, really great game tonight. But give me the Falcons. They need the win, like you said. I need Matt Ryan to put on a great performance because he's on my fantasy football team and my NFL, or uh, my fantasy football playoffs start today. So let's go, Matt Ryan. But um, but not all biases aside, I think it's going to be a tough matchup for the Saints to rolling into the Falcons building and a must-win scenario for Atlanta. The fans are going to be all fired up. Um, these two teams are no strangers to each other. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think the Saints defense has been doing phenomenal all year long. But again, I don't know how long they can hold that up. And it's like you said, Julio Jones was held in check last week. I can't see that happening two weeks in a row. Uh, for me, you know, I'm going against a lot of Saints in the fantasy football playoffs. And I'm very worried. But I do like the Falcons defense in this one to hold those Saints players. But that doesn't mean I think the Saints are going to lose this fat game. The Saints have always been playing extremely well this season. I think they're just going to roll strong as they had in last week against the Carolina Panthers. Mark Ingram questionable in this one, but I don't think that will make a difference. Nonetheless, because Kamara has been great, I think one of the keys the Falcons need to do is they have to split their time between Devontae Freeman and Trevor Holman. Last week, Freeman had, I think, nearly 70% of the snap count compared to Coleman, which was one of the highest that they had this season in the difference between those two teams. I think you're going to see them cut down and make it a little bit more split again, which has been the Falcons' success 
this season with getting Coleman the ball just as much as Freeman, using both options. That's something we didn't see the Falcons do last week. It resulted in them losing against the Minnesota Vikings. I think they're going to go back to that, but I don't know if that will be enough for the Falcons to get the win. And this could be the reason the Falcons get pushed out of the playoffs because they had a tough schedule of having to play the Vikings and Saints in back-to-back weeks while the Seahawks were able to pick up the win against the Eagles as well. Certainly a great game we expect for tonight, and honestly, this is one of the the best Week 4 teams you could have at the moment, where the top seven NFC teams all are playing teams of 7-5 and five and better. Most of them are playing against NFC opponents or division opponents. A couple of big division matchups as well this week. It, it, this is a great moment for, I think, the NFL scheduling-wise. It, it's a huge hit when you're talking about six games that all have great playoff implications upon them between all 12 teams in that scenario. Uh, it's certainly going to make a lot of fun. And, of course, the fantasy football playoffs beginning this week, and it's always a fun moment for me as well. Got a couple teams, and it begins tonight for me, and I know it begins tonight for you as well with Matt Ryan. So good luck for you in the playoffs as well, Jose. Oh, please, please, Lord, baby Jesus. I need need this win. Uh, Brandon writes, and I'm sure others included. Uh, I just want the ring, man. I already said it. If I win the ring in my league, I'm going to take a nice little Michael Jordan photo. I'm going to get a black turtleneck, and I'm just going to, you know, Show off my one ring on, on on my finger. Yeah, there is a ring in my league, and unfortunately, I've always rather the championship belt because not a jewelry guy, so it may just hot the ring if I win it, but we'll see what happens in mine. Uh, as always, as we're in episode 15 of our podcast, and today is December 7th, we do look back in on sports history in our Beard Bat segment, and today on December 7th, in 1937, the Red Sox acquired the contract of 19-year-old Ted Williams, one of the greatest of all-time hitters and one of the best players and just a phenomenal career out of Ted Williams, one of the greatest players of all time. And then two years later, on December 7th in 1939, Lou Gehrig, 36, is elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was the first player to have the rule waived that required a player to be retired one year before he could be elected. So Lou Gehrig gets into the Hall of Fame on December 7th, 1937, and the Red Sox acquire the contract of 19-year-old Ted Williams. And with a few of these baseball parts, it puts in a great moment to say that our Nets podcast, Saras on the Beard, episode 16. We're going to be covering a lot of the MLB and all the MLB free agency. We're going to talk about a lot of different players that are free agents that we could see going to certain teams, breaking down a lot more into the John Carlos Stanton. Where is he going to wind up? It seems like either San Francisco or the Cardinals, maybe the Dodgers as well. And Shoei Otani's got his teams limited down to a few. So, Jose, I'm really looking forward to our baseball podcast as well. Yeah, I mean, the winter meetings is always an exciting time. A lot of rumors going around who goes where. And chances are, you know, we make a list of teams that need a certain player. Then out of nowhere, a team that you didn't expect to sign the player or even need that player ends up coming out of nowhere to grab them. So it's an exciting time for baseball, really, all year round. And, of course, Yankee and Mets fans is – We'll be talking about Aaron Boone as well as some of the big New York Yankee team needs and New York Met team needs as well. 
Yeah, I know the Yankees still need a bench coach, but I'm not sure if J-Lo is still in the running for that. So uh, we should see if uh, she's still available to take that job, even though a Rod's not the manager. And on a historical part on December 7th, <laughs> uh, Pearl Harbor attack uh, on the United States. Uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, attack on Hawaii. Of Japan was on December 7th and initially started the United States into World War II as that was also on December 7th. So not just a sports day on December 7th, but also a huge historic day of the United States as well. Uh, so always after our beer bat segment, we have Dude and Dunce of the Week and my dude of the week, I'm giving it to, we spoke about him earlier, Jose, Josh McCown of the New York Jets. 331 passing yards, one touchdown, as well as 19 rushing yards and two rushing touchdowns. And, and what in my mind was the best Jet game this season of a 38-31 win over the Kansas City Chiefs. Just a phenomenal game by Josh McCown and the New York Jets. And he gets his first dude of the week. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Oh, my dunce of the week is Marcus Peters and the Kansas City Chiefs defense. Yes, the Kansas City Chiefs defense was horrible in the game against the New York Jets. Uh, I mean, at one at the end of the game, when the Jets scored that final touchdown, they gave them about six chances to try and score that touchdown. I mean, come on. And in their defense, the Jets almost didn't score on any of those. But we're going to look aside on that for now. They gave them six chances to take the go-ahead touchdown after numerous stops. They just could not commit stop committing penalties. Then on top of that, you had Marcus Peters, who took a referee flag and chucked it into the stands. Kudos for the kid who caught it. He was probably all over Snapchat and the internet by now. But he starts taking selfies with the flag. And then Marcus Peters, who we all thought was ejected, turns out he was not ejected and walked off the field on his own. I'm sorry, but it was 38-31. to 31. Your team still had a very slim chance of trying to come back in that game. You need to be there on the sidelines with your team. That's childish. Walking off on a play like that, childish. Throwing the flag into the stands. I know it's frustrating. I understand people, competition gets the best of them. But clearly childish, especially when you're considered one of the best players in this defense and one of the team leaders. So Marcus Peters and the Kansas City Chiefs defense, all are my dunce of the week. And the Chiefs did suspend Marcus Peters this week, so he will not be playing against the Raiders. Uh, Surprisingly, the NFL didn't suspend him for throwing the flag but the Chiefs instead suspend them and that to me is a good move that to me I have a lot of respect for the Chiefs for because honestly again it's more of a team thing though like I mean even if we turn the ball over you're still not on the sidelines to watch us even though we lost you're still not here as part of your team that's putting yourself that's holding yourself to a higher standard in the team and that's just not good and you're talking about in a must-win scenario against the Oakland Raiders this week exactly and Again, you were listening to Sarasa and the Beard podcast episode 15. Once again, I am Nick Sarasa. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And again, Sarasa and the Beard podcast episode 16. We'll be talking about the MLB. That will be coming out most likely on Saturday or Sunday this weekend as well. So enjoy your day and thank you for listening to Sarasa and the Beard. Using an overpriced trash bag? Pricey, pricey, pricey! A bag that breaks? Whippy, whippy, whippy! Or a smelly bag? Stinky, stinky, stinky! You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty! It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy! 
Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty!